Some of you might remember a uh, 90s TV show by the name of Family Matters. Uh, It was a show, if you're not familiar with it, a show about an African-American family. The father was a Chicago police officer. The mom worked at a Chicago paper. And the show was supposed to be about how they were raising their kids and taking care of an elderly mother and even helping out a sister whose husband had left her. But about four episodes into the series, they introduced a character that would become legendary. One by the name of Steve Urkel. Now, if you know the story of the character, he was only supposed to show up once. He was only supposed to be in one episode, never to be seen again. But he was loved so much by the people who uh, watched the show, they brought him back. And he continued to become more popular, so they continued to bring him back. And he became what we would probably call a cultural phenomenon. Lunchboxes, uh, outfits, uh, all sorts of things that you could think of had Steve Urkel on them. And so then surely he be, kind of became the central of this, uh, central part of the show. And, and the plot that he was most a part of was his undying devotion and love for their daughter, Laura. In almost every episode, he at some point or another would come bursting through the door, as sweet as can be, as kind and as pure and as innocent as can be, and declare, I love you, Laura. I'm going to love you forever, Laura. Will you be my girlfriend in every episode? She goes, shut up, Steve. I'm not going to be your girlfriend. I don't like you. I don't like you like that. You're you're a nice guy, Steve, but I don't like you that way. In every episode, he would shove, Laura, I love you. And he would do all sorts of wacky things to try and prove to her over and over that he was the guy who loved her the most. And there were episodes where she had boyfriends over and and Steve would be like, I'm, I'm better. And he would try all sorts of things to try to impress her. But the, the laugh was, he would say, I love you, Laura. And she would go, Steve, shut up. And it would happen over and over and over again for the next seven seasons. Now, our text, the story you heard me read this morning, is a very similar context. Not long before this, Jesus tells the story of the parable or tells the parable of the prodigal son. The story about a child who has wandered away and done wicked things and finally returns home and is embraced by his father. It's one of the most moving and memorable stories in all of your Bible. Now, immediately upon the heels of telling that story, Jesus tells another parable about a money manager and about how the love of money can actually keep a person from returning to their loving heavenly father. And then the Bible tells us that the religious leaders who were sitting there and listening to what Jesus had to say scoffed or rejected what he shared with them. They rejected the idea that God was gracious and loving and forgiving to those who would turn from their wickedness and return to him. And they were scoffing at the idea that their love of money was evidence that they were not going to return. In fact, they denied the idea that they even had a need to return to a gracious, loving, unfor- or loving and forgiving father. And so this story, Jesus tells in that context, all of this, the, the hypocrisy, the love of money, the rejection of their loving heavenly father is all tied up in this parable. And it is a parable, if you want to know, it is a parable that you can sum up that is about unbelief. And so what we have here in this parable are three lessons I want to share with you about unbelief. 
Number one, the first thing that we come to is this, that number one, outward conditions cannot hide unbelief from God. Outward conditions cannot hide unbelief from God. One of the first things we need to understand is that this rich man, of course, plays the bad guy in the story. He is not the bad guy because he is wealthy. This is not about the idea that being wealthy is being evil, or if you are wealthy, you must be an unbeliever. The idea here is Jesus is using something most of us are familiar with. And that is there is a difference between those who are rich and those who are poor. Now, the idea here, though, is we're supposed to notice the gap or the difference between these two men. We're supposed to see them, in fact, as polar opposites of each other. For example, the first thing we find out about them is their difference in outward appearance. The rich man is described as being covered with fine linen and purple clothes. The poor man, or Lazarus, is described as being covered in sores. So the rich man goes around in comfort, and the Bible tells us the only comfort that Lazarus has is when dogs came to lick his sores. We're supposed to see that they're different in their conditions. The Bible describes that Lazarus, the poor man, as needing to be carried or placed at the gate of the rich man. He cannot get there by himself. He is relying upon other people. So not only does he have sores, but there is some form of paralysis. But the contrast is that the rich man had the ability to come and go as he pleased. And then lastly, they're different in their resources. The text tells us that one man eats plenty. The idea there is, in fact, that he always is shoving food in his mouth. There was a never-ending stream of resources. And the other man, or the rich, or the Lazarus, the poor man, is described as just wishing he could get crumbs from the rich man's table. Now, the idea here is you're supposed to see the rich man and these religious leaders as the same person. Jesus would describe these religious leaders as those who wore fine clothes. Their outward appearance was always about showing how religious they were. He talks about the idea that they loved sitting in the high places. They loved being invited into the homes. They loved being seen in the marketplace. They're described as devouring winners' homes, meaning they would take money from people. They would eat other people's food. And the idea is because they were well-dressed, because they were invited, because they were popular, because they had food, because they had money, it was obvious, this was their argument, they were God's anointed. It was clear because they had all of the blessings that they were the spiritual people that everybody else was supposed to look up to. And by implication, that meant if you were poor, if you were sick, if you were not popular, you had some significant spiritual deficit. But then we get to verse 22. And the Bible says that Lazarus dies and goes to heaven. The idea there of Abraham's bosom means that he is next to him at the table. So he goes and he sits in a prominent place. The Lazarus dies and he's gone to heaven. He's sat at a prominent place in heaven. That's the idea of Abraham's bosom. But then we're told that the rich man dies and all we're told is that he was buried. It is the idea that he died and there was a funeral. Likely people showed up, likely there were professional mourners that were hired, likely food was put out. But the idea there is his death got attention, and that was the end of his story. 
He doesn't go to heaven. In fact, what we're supposed to understand here is that these two men do not end in the place where the story is expected to go. Their outward conditions do not result in the ending everyone is expecting. Now, the idea that the outward does not always reflect the inward is a very common teaching in the Bible. Most of us are familiar with one of the most famous passages that God looks upon, or man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? The heart. God looks upon the heart. Now, in my years in ministry, one of the things I like to do is if I am speaking to a group of teenagers, especially in the last 10 years or so, is I'll ask, one of, uh, ask for a volunteer and ask if any of them would be willing to let me read whatever text I want off their phone to the whole group. And in 10 years, I have not had one taker. And the reality is the reason for that is because some of those texts, if they were revealed to the public, would destroy carefully built outward appearances. I'll give you another example. Years ago, long before I got here, I had a young man come up to me. He was so very excited because he was about to get married. And he was telling me all about how God's sovereignty had brought them together and how it was meant to be. And he was so excited about going into ministry. And I have no idea why. Don't ask me why. But he came to me asking for financial advice. And he was telling me about how he had his job and he was working hard. And he was putting money away. In fact, he had saved enough that he was going to take his girl on the most wonderful honeymoon. And so he said, do you think there's anything else I need to do? And I said, you know, I wanted to know, are you, are you setting any aside? Are you giving any to the local church you attend? And I'll always remember the fact that his face just fell and he walked away. Didn't even answer. An outward appearance does not always reflect the inward. Now, I don't want you, what I don't want to have happen this morning is if you're here this morning and you are struggling with something, if, you, if you're struggling, and I don't want you to immediately assume that you're an unbeliever. What I would want to say to you this morning is that doubt and unbelief are often two very different things. Doubt has a tendency to show up in the Christian's life, particularly when something has happened, some sort of difficulty, trauma, some, something that is kind of rocking the boat in their life. Doubt is often a condition. And the Bible says God often, or God can and does, use doubt in our life. But what we're talking about here is unbelief. The idea being that we're talking about somebody who knows that God has said not to lie, and they lie because they don't think anybody's going to call them on it. Or they think that it's okay to gossip, even though God says not to gossip, because they're pretty sure nobody's going to question their spiritual maturity. It's the kind of person who has figured out how to practice, how to imitate the outward appearance of being in the right with God. But the warning here is that an outward condition cannot hide unbelief from God. And that leads to number two, and that is this. Separation and torment are the punishment for unbelief. Separation and torment are the punishment for unbelief. Look at verses 22 to 26. And you find two ideas here, and that is torment in separation. And they are presented to us as equal parts of the rich man's punishment. Now, most of us, if we've grown up in church, we have heard this story in some form or another. 
And if I ask random people, most of the time they'll tell me, this is the story about the guy who goes to hell and he's tormented by the flame and he asks people, or he asks for a drink of water for somebody to relieve his thirst. Almost anybody I can ask can recall that part of the story. They remember the flames of hell. And most that's because most of us who've grown up in church, when you get to this story, it is all about the fire, fire, fire. It is all about the torment of the fire. And it is certainly a part of this story. Now, what most people don't remember is how Abraham responds. And one of the parts of his response is that there is, there is too much separation. When teaching on the very realities of hell, these two ideas are always meant to be together. There is the torment of the flame and there is the reality of separation. Now, most people we talk to, their idea of hell comes from a Bugs Bunny cartoon, something they saw in Family Circle in the paper, or some other entertainment outlet. And as I said, most Christians think of hell only in the context of fire, fire, fire. But in this particular story, I want to show you two things. First of all, the fires, here, the fires of hell that are presented to us here are clearly meant to parallel the existence of Lazarus. Meaning, if I can say it this way, the idea is we're supposed to understand that Lazarus' life was hell on earth. And the lack of care and sympathy from the rich man contributed more fire to the hell that Lazarus was experiencing. And so the idea would be this, that the flames of hell that are tormenting the rich man in this moment were fires that he had set himself. He was being burned by the same flames that had caused miserableness in a metaphorical way to Lazarus. And we're supposed to understand that he knows this. He knows these fires were set by him. And we note in the text, he still does not repent. He still sees himself as better than Lazarus. He still wants Lazarus to serve him. He is miserable in these flames of hell that he has set himself, and yet he is not changed. But the second thing I want you to note, or ask the question this way, if someone is an unrepentant hellfire starter, what would you need to do with them to keep everyone safe? You would have to separate them from everyone. You would have to make sure that separation was far enough, as we see in the text, far enough so that nobody can get to them and they can't get to anybody. You see, Jesus is using the Old Testament picture of hell, a place that is outside of a magnificent city. So if this morning, if you think of hell and you think of a cave that's deep, dark, and you got stalactite and stalagmite, that's the bad, bad idea. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is the idea of a place that is on fire, separated from the city, like a city dump, that is nowhere near the walled city and will never be a part of that walled city. And the gap so great that nobody who lives over here can ever get to anybody who lives over here. So here are these religious leaders in their nice clothes and their high respectability, their plates full of food, and Jesus is describing them as hellfire starters. 
And if they're going to unleash hell on earth, the just thing would be to set them apart and let them live in the hell of their own making. Now, I want you to understand, it is hard to communicate the insult this was for Jesus to say that they were going to end up outside of the city, that they were going to get left out of the king of God's kingdom. There is no doubt that Jesus is saying this to them. There's no doubt they understood it this way. And these guys had no comprehension that God was going to do anything other than kill all of Israel's enemies and parade these guys before everyone else as examples to the universe of godliness. They understood nothing else. But the question many people ask me at this point is, is unbelief really a serious enough offense to deserve being separated and put in the fires of hell? And the answer is yes. If you walk through it, here is God saying, these were the men who kept the law of Moses. Here they, they knew what God expected. And Jesus, right before this, says, you're the kind of guys who are constantly breaking the rules. And in fact, you are promoting things that God calls abomination. And so God says, here's the rules. And they say, you know what? We don't like them. Let's change them. God says, you know what? You need me to see the truth. He says it all over the Old Testament. And their response is, no, we don't. God provides his Savior, and they say, no thanks. God says all they have to do is believe, and they say, we don't. And then we see a story like this, and we see that they're separated, and they're experiencing the fires of hell. They're fully aware that God has been telling the truth. They're fully aware that God loves them. They don't cry out for forgiveness. They don't cry out that they're sorry. They're in their torment, and they still don't believe. So let me ask you this. What kind of hell would you experience if every wicked word, every wicked thought, every wicked deed was used to start a fire that you would live in for all of eternity? What kind of world, what kind of eternity would you have if, if every sin that you committed was considered a starter of the fires of hell? What kind of existence would you have all for eternity? Now, I want you to compare that to the world you could live in because of every righteous word, every righteous thought, every righteous deed that Christ did. And when we put our faith in Christ, that's the exchange we make. The hell we create for the paradise that Jesus has earned. And so when Jesus confronts these religious leaders, he's showing us this torment, this separation is a just response to this unbelief. And he is, he is confronting the kind of men who loved material things so much, they were responsible for creating hell on earth for a number of people around them. Men who scoffed at a loving Heavenly Father, men who scoffed at the idea that the love of money was a problem. And here Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to reject a story about God being a loving heavenly father, let me tell you a story about God being a father who protects his children for all of eternity from men like them. And that brings us to number three, and that is this, that humans are blind to their unbelief. Humans are blind to their unbelief. Verse 27 to 31, we get the final kind of chapter in this story. Chapter 1, two men who live very different lives. Chapter 2, two men who have very different eternities. Now, our hope would be, as I said, that we would get to the end of the story, the rich man would understand and would regret his unbelief. 
And at first glance, it does seem like what we get. We see this man wants someone to go and warn his brothers. He doesn't want them to end up there. Yet, we immediately recognize who does he want Abraham to send? Lazarus. The guy he ignored. The guy he never ministered to. The guy who suffered outside of his gate. He still wants him. He wants Lazarus to minister to his needs. Even after the water lesson, he still sees himself as superior to Lazarus. The needs of his life as superior to Lazarus. This guy still doesn't get it. Notice Abraham's response. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. It's a common description of the Bible. Moses and the prophets. You see, he's saying Lazarus doesn't need to go. They have Moses and the prophets. And I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here. If you go through the Gospels, a lot of times the religious leaders would respond to something Jesus said or did by saying, we're children of Abraham. Or they'll say, you know what, we follow Moses. Or they say, you know what, we have the prophets. All of that was used as reasons as to why they were rejecting what Christ was offering. Then we see the rich man's response. No, that's not good enough. If someone were to rise from the dead and preach to them, they would repent. Now, this is another confrontation that Jesus would have with these religious leaders. They, for all their talk of loving the scriptures, they would often and continuously demand a sign from Jesus. He would do something, and just minutes later, they'd be like, well, we need some more proof. Even we get all the way to the crucifixion, and they're standing there saying, you know what, if, if, if you would come down, then we would believe you. And so, see, Abraham's saying, look, they're not going to believe it. That's the reality of unbelief. If they're not going to believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe any evidence presented to them, not even resurrection from the dead. Of course, it's foreshadowing the fact that Christ will rise from the dead. Even after he rises from the dead, they still won't believe. A blind man cannot see. It doesn't matter what you put in front of him. The blindness needs to be removed. And you see the full circle of the story. God very clearly sees our unbelief. We can try so very hard to cover it up, and we might fool other people into thinking we're spiritual, but God won't be fooled. But at the same time, at the same time, humans are completely blind to their blindness, and while we can't fool God, we can very much fool ourselves. We need to understand that blindness is not an exclusive problem of the unsaved or the non-Christian. Many times in the scriptures, we're told that the children of God themselves can be prone to being blind to their own blindness. Just like in the context here, we get preoccupied with the pleasures and possessions of this life and we forget all about eternity. We go through seasons where we prefer the gifts of God over the giver of gifts. We fall headlong in unbelief because we're scared and we don't believe. We get angry and we don't believe. We get proud and we don't believe. And we open our Bibles and we go front to back and we don't see anything that it says. I was reading a book a couple of weeks ago uh, by John Steinbeck uh, called East of Eden. And I got to a line in the book and it kind of hit me. He was talking about a woman, a character in the story. And this is what he said about her. He said, she reads her her Bible cover to cover every year. But had stopped listening a long time ago. 
As someone whose life, for me, as someone whose life is really about reading the Bible from cover to cover every year, this made me really stop. Is this true about me? Is it true about you? Sometimes all we're left, all we're left with is to go to Jesus and say, Lord, help my unbelief. And see, here now we understand, you've probably heard a lot about Lent this season. This is where we see that the early church fathers got the tradition of sacrificing things for Lent. Or sacrificing or putting things away leading up to Easter. The idea was that maybe we need to put some things away that keep us from admitting we have become blind. In the modern sense, we turn off the TV, we limit what we eat, we don't get dressed up. Or in the way I often tell you, say to you, when we get to Christmas, I always say to you, hey, make sure you eat some extra fudge. This season is about putting the fudge away. And making sure it's not distracting us from this serious reflection of spiritual truth that we are often blind to our unbelief. And so we have... This amazing Heavenly Father, full of grace, full of forgiveness, full of love, and unbelief scoffs at it. And this unbelief can perhaps be hidden by all sorts of performances and imitations of faith, but will never be hidden from God. Unbelief is a match in the gasoline that sets a world on fire that often creates hell on earth for the people around us. And so when it comes to torment and separation, if we die in unbelief, it is a just and merciful response of God. But unbelief is not only the reason that many people will never become Christians. It's also often the reason why many Christians fail to live as God has instructed. To not listen to his word, no matter how much and how over the top he has expressed his love to us again and again and again. Believe. Because unbelief cannot be hidden. Unbelief will come with punishment. And unbelief is often blinding us to our own blindness. Believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parable that our Lord spoke. The realities of it, the challenge of it. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who understand the lessons of unbelief. It cannot be hidden. It is right and just for it to be punished. And Father, on our own, by ourselves, often we will not see it. And so we pray to you, Father, we cry out to you, Father, help our unbelief. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.